Understanding Integrated Care Systems. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello, everybody. I'm Catherine Barnes, a public law barrister at 39 Essex Chambers. And I'm Rachel Sullivan, another public law specialist at 39. Rachel and I practice healthcare law in particular, so we are acutely aware, not least because our clients keep bringing it up, that major structural change to the NHS is underway. And by that, of course, I mean integrated care systems brought in by the recently enacted Health and Care Act 2022. As we all know, nothing about NHS structure is straightforward. Uh, So we've invited Gerard Hanrati, partner and head of health at Brown Jacobson, to clear up any confusion and bring us all up to date with the changes. Gerard could not be a better person to ask about this topic because he's been at the forefront of advising the NHS on the development of ICSs. In practical terms, that means that anything Gerard doesn't know about ICSs is almost certainly not worth knowing. So welcome, Gerard. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So to kick off, Gerard, um, could you give us a quick recap as to how the NHS Uh, was structured um, before the 1st of July. Uh, And in particular, if you could tell us a bit about the role of CCGs, clinical uh, commissioning groups within that structure, that would be great. Okay, so the starting point has always been with the Secretary of State, um, given the functions that Parliament gives specifically to that person. Um, Under the Lansley reforms, what we saw was a bit of a step back um, and taking on a more the role of overseeing what's happening as opposed to direct intervention. Um, But as we moved through to today and moved from Lansley through to Jeremy Hunt and then Matt Hancock, we saw um, a greater willingness to become more involved in what the NHS was doing and to actually intervene at times more, which obviously culminated with COVID and the need then to actually take some direct action and to direct NHS bodies and other health bodies with regard to what was needed to deal with that that pandemic. So we've seen the role of the Secretary of State start to evolve since 2012. Um, With NHS England, who were originally, and up until 1st of July, were still called the NHS Commissioning Board, um, their role initially really was as a commissioner themselves of specialist services and then primary care but also to regulate how CCGs operated and to look over the whole country to see how the NHS was actually delivering its services and making sure the arrangements were in place to provide a comprehensive health service um, to to England. Uh, One of the interesting things with NHS England um, was that as we've moved forward, they've actually merged together with NHS Improvement. So as opposed to having NHS Improvement simply regulating in terms of trusts and providers, um, what what we saw towards the end of 2021-22 was that um, we had a single regulator coming into force and actually dealing with the system overall, which is quite pertinent to what actually happens um, from 1st of July. As to CCGs, then 
you have to remember that that was the culmination of a move towards separating out providers and commissioners. So that was the ultimate aim of the Health and Social Care Act of 2012 to fulfil that um, that intention. And so they had no um, provision um, within their functions or anything at all. Um, it, it kind of continued on from moving PCTs. If you remember, we had transforming community services and that split PCTs commissioning and provision functions. So that's effectively what happened with CCGs and they were a pure commissioner. Um, and obviously, though, you need the other side of the coin, which is the provision. And that came from trusts and foundation trusts, um, as well as other providers in the independent sector, the voluntary sector, third sector, as well, coming through and providing services through contract. Thank you. Um, I think you said that the aim uh, for the introduction of CCGs was clear separation of commissioning and pro- uh, providing functions. What have the problems been with that? So what you've created is quite a competitive marketplace. Um, So we have had a lot of procurement um, for services, especially given the the public regulations over that. Um, And we haven't had that much integration as a result, because obviously trusts, FTs, independent sector, voluntary sector, they're all competing to provide the services that um, CCGs and NHS England will commission uh, for the whole population. So what we've seen is that, you know, working together has kind of, to some degree, has happened, to be fair, um, especially when you look at um, mental health services and community services. But then when you come to the acute services, then FTs were very much created to be separate legal bodies that operated by themselves and tried to make sure they did the best they could for themselves. Um, so That means that when you go into something like the pandemic, they saw the benefit of actually everybody working together um, and being able to utilise the workforce in a better way, being able to utilise the expertise and making sure that you could provide a comprehensive health service across the country um, and start to iron out some of the deficiencies, for want of a better phrase, that may exist in other parts um, of the country as we move forward. So we know that um, in some areas, especially areas of deprivation, we struggle at times to get GPs there. Um, So I think what they're hoping is that actually starting to remove the competition layer will help to support and achieve the aim of integration as we go forward. So you've helpfully told us about the previous structure of the NHS. What then is changing under the Health and Care Act 2022? So One of the first things that happened under the Health and Care Act was that CCGs were abolished. And when they were abolished, um, then statute operated to transfer all of their functions, as well as um, all of their staff and uh, everything else, to the relevant ICB. Um, The interesting thing with that as well, and one of the things I should have said originally, was when we created CCGs, we created over 200, um, which is a large number of bodies. We got it down to 106 um, by just end of June this year, and now we've moved to 42 ICBs in terms of going forward. So that has meant that we've opened up the ability for commissioners to look more widely across their geographical areas and also how they can operate together on more specialist services. Um, So that's quite important as we go forward, I think. Uh, to make sure you you maximise the opportunity you have 
through these new commissioners. Um, so with the abolition of CCGs and everything transferring over, they obviously have the functions that CCGs had by and large. But the other thing is that they have new functions added to that. So functions which are really aimed at trying to um, integrate and collaborate. So when they create a plan around how they're going to provide services in their ICS, which is called a forward plan, they have to do that with the NHS trusts and the FTs. They have to work together. And equally, when they're looking at how they're going to use the capital that will be given to them through Parliament and then through NHS England, then again, um, they have to do that together and come up with a plan together. So um, not quite forcing them, but certainly getting them to work together more to strategically plan how they're going to deliver services uh, within their system as we go forward. And with that as well, the other point is that there is now um, a new obligation on them to look more widely at um, how services will be created and the effect that could be had on them by the decisions they make. So looking to make sure they make the best use of NHS resources, that they look at how they will benefit the overall population of England with the changes they make, and also within that as well, looking to meet some of the environmental obligations um, which have been at the forefront of the media uh, in recent years over um, net carbon, uh, net, well, zero net carbon and other aspects of actually benefiting the environment as we go forward. And what's the timeline for these changes? So the changes are in force. Um, unusually, we have brought these changes into effect halfway through a financial year, well, um, a third into a financial year, quarter quarter into a financial year. Um, so I think what will be quite interesting to see over the next nine months is exactly how they bed in, um, what the problems are in terms of what the legislation has created, which were not envisaged when the legislation was put in place, and then how they may be ironed out and how the system may start to change, because it's a very different system um, that we've put in place. And equally, we are also trying to change culture. Um, and changing culture through legislation will take time, um, is the long and the short of it. So, you know, in a number of the meetings I've had, especially with provider organisations, they have been quite clear that they have spent a large part of the last decade or so actually in competition with the, with other trusts, with other providers, um, and now they're being asked to collaborate. And so they have to change their mindset to do that. And Whilst we will see through the integrated care boards, when we look at that structure, that actually there is an attempt to do that by having partner members um, to encourage that and move that forward, it will take time for all of those changes to actually bed in. It will take time for people to understand how they can work together. And it will take time for people to develop relationships. So anybody who has heard any of the senior people in the system talk will know they constantly talk about the need for relationships to make this change work and to actually achieve meaningful integration uh, across the health system. You've touched on this already, but could you tell us in a little bit more detail what the creation of ICSs is supposed to achieve? So I think some of it possibly came from what we saw during the pandemic, although the concept was already in place. Um, Simon Stevens had already announced, you know, his view that we needed to be more integrated as a system, that whilst the Health and Social Care Act had separated out commissioning and provision, actually to meet the demands that on the health service, we needed greater collaboration, greater cooperation, and we needed people to work together more. Uh, so 
that's really ultimately the aim. And in doing so, and something else Simon Stevens or Lord Stevens was quite clear about when he was chief exec of NHS England, was that actually we have a real need to reduce inequalities across the system. So inequalities of access and inequalities of outcomes, because we still have places around the country where um, people don't get the service that you may do in other parts of the country. So trying to um, make sure those are removed and that people actually benefit as much as they can from the healthcare service we have. How are the integrated care systems structured and what's their role? So we have what I call two parts to the new integrated care system. Part A is that which is established through legislation. So legislation in abolishing CCGs uh, then created integrated care boards and integrated care partnerships. Integrated care partnerships being a joint committee between the integrated care board and the relevant local authorities in their area. It also um, brought together NHS commissioning board and NHS improvement. So it then as a result, creates NHS England as a sole regulator across the system. But when we look at ICBs, then legislation required ICBs to have a chair appointed by NHS England, um, a chief executive appointed by the chair, but with the approval of NHS England, and then three what they call partner members. So those are people to represent um, the views from NHS providers, local authorities, and also primary medical services, so that the the ICB itself could start to bring in all of that information and making the decisions that it needed to. Um, NHS England then issued guidance called the ICS Design Framework, and within that, um, they also required that each ICB should have at least two independent NEDs, most of them, to be honest, have a few more than that, given the, the, the work that they have to do. A director of finance, a director, a medical director, and also director of nursing. Um, so we have all of those roles sitting on the ICB, um, the actual board of the ICB itself. Uh, but equally, some of them have also added to that. So the legislation um, allows you to have ordinary members, um, Ordinary members could be, you know, directors of commissioning, directors of integration. Uh, so some have added that in. But by and large, most of the boards that you see around the country will probably number somewhere between about 15 to 20 people um, so that they can actually do business together. But that's kind of the, the structure for the ICB board. And then, as I said, we have the Integrated Care Partnership being the joint committee. But then through guidance... Um, and through policy, what we have are two policy constructs. So one are one is provider collaboratives, um, with the concept behind that being that we should bring together initially the NHS provider trusts so that they can work together strategically and look at how they deliver services across the ICS itself. And then going forward, that will undoubtedly start to look at um, including other providers, independent sector, voluntary sector. They certainly need to have primary care in there as well. Um, and then we also have this concept of place. Um, place is perhaps one of the more tricky concepts. And I say that because in most instances at the minute, place is created through having a committee or a subcommittee of the integrated care board itself. And the functions going into it will only be NHS functions. Ideally, we would like to be the local authorities to be able to create a joint committee around place. 
But what we need for that is for local authorities to be given the ability to actually start to be able to put their functions into a joint committee with the NHS, which is an extra stage that I think needs to be looked at. So moving away from the general concept of the Section 75 arrangement, actually having something whereby people can work together and actually make decisions on the functions they both hold. Um, So that essentially is what the ICS is starting to look like. So you have the Integrated Care Board, the Integrated Care Partnership, PLACE and Provider Collaboratives. And just on that topic of place, what's the role of place-based partnerships in this? Is that what you've just been telling us about in terms of local authorities? We created place-based partnerships actually before before the legislation was coming in, so that, well, in many instances we did, so that people could start to work together. So that was across um, the NHS, local authorities, uh, voluntary sector, charitable sector, those who actually had an interest in what was going on in a specific place, starting to bring them together because we knew the intention was actually to, to look at place-based um, provision as we go forward. So in some instances, we've created those place-based partnerships uh, where we have them and we have agreements in place. What we've then done is created a statutory basis for them by creating a committee or subcommittee um, that they can work through. But at the minute, we can't put everything that would have been in the place-based partnership um, within that because that was, it wasn't a, a formal decision-making group as such. Individual executives who were there from the local authority for the NHS may have had the power to make decisions themselves and shared that within the actual group as they were making them. But what we what we would like to do ideally is create a, um, a basis on which in place you can make a decision which goes across health and social care as well. You've mentioned some changes to the regulatory regime. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and in particular the new supervisory powers gained by NHS England? NHS England, um, to be honest, have kind of taken on the powers that they had over CCGs as the NHS Commissioning Board and have now also taken on the powers that NHS improvement in both of its statutory forms had um, with regard to trusts and FTs. And a large part of that is about looking to make sure um, that if there is failure, that is addressed, that support is given, if that's what need is needed, that um, organisations are held to account with regard to failures they have, but equally they are given, they are given and supported to have a clear plan in order to um, sort out the issues that they have and to make sure that the services they provide are safe and that any governance challenges they have are addressed. Um, so those powers are not dissimilar, to be honest, to that which we, we already understand. But I think one of the interesting things we will start to see as we go forward, um, because we now simply have one regulator within the NHS, is how they then um, work with the integrated care systems over their regulations. So I think there is a an expectation that what we will see is ICBs um, may well become the initial point of contact between NHS England and the ICS itself when issues start to develop and that the chairs and the chief executives of the ICB will be quite involved in addressing issues within their ICS over uh, quality of services or any specific emergency responses. Um, Remembering that an ICB itself is now also uh, a Category 1 responder 
um, as we go forward for any emergency issues. So I think what we'll start to see is not quite self-regulation, but a greater involvement of the ICB within the ICS in terms of understanding the issues and addressing them and putting a plan in place with NHS England over the top, looking to make sure that plan addresses all of the various problems that they have seen. And what about the role of the CQC in respect of this new regime? So I think with that, we're looking to see how the CQC and NHS England will work together. We've seen that the new Act um, brings in legislation so that CQC will now start to look at um, how social services exercise their functions. And we'll see how that fits into the overall way that uh, the NHS exercise their functions going forward. I think some of it we expect may now become more at an ICS level in terms of what's happening. We know that CQC are also expected to look more at how trusts work um, together and especially how they work with place going forward. Uh, So again, kind of reinforcing that whole concept of collaboration and integration as you work forward and an expectation that if you're not doing it, you can explain why you're not doing it um, from a regulatory perspective. And presumably as well, we will still have that approach when there is a significant issue that you will see the ICB, CQC and NHS England coming together in order as almost a triumvirate to look at What are the problems here? How can we all work together to address them and support whichever organisation is uh, going through a particularly troubling time? Obviously, this is quite a lot of change um, coming about from the perspective of the bodies that will go into comprising the ICS. And do you envisage there being challenges on the ground? If so, what sort of issues do you think they might face? So I think the first thing is that Essentially, we're looking at a cultural change here. So we're moving from competition through to collaboration. And a lot of the provider organisations and their executive directors and their doctors have all said that this is a change for them and it's going to take time to bed in. So I think that's the first thing that um, will take a bit of time. And connected to that and part of that is the need for relationships to develop um, so that they can evolve confidence in each other and then move forward in terms of planning and making sure they utilise the resources they have within an ICS to the best advantage of uh, everybody who lives in that particular area. So I think all of that will will take time um, as we go forward equally. I think that there are certainly, um, there is a desire now to uh, involve patients perhaps more than we have done in the past when we're looking at the way that services are designed and brought together and part of that as well relates to how can we best ensure that we reduce inequalities of outcomes and access as well going forward. So I think from all of those perspectives we'll start to see um, a change as we bed in the new system that It will take a bit of time for people really to make sure the plans are in place to support their collaboration. So then thinking about that time, obviously the additional pressure which the NHS has at the minute is that it's just coming out of having dealt with their pandemic. Um, I say just coming out, actually we're starting to see cases of COVID going into hospital increasing again. Uh, It's also as a result has significant backlog on 
what the work it was doing prior to the pandemic starting and the changes that had to be brought in to address that. So as a result, all of those are pressures which are going to be applied to the system as we move forward um, in the next several years and they will take time to sort out. Uh, whether more money will help um, is one thing. Against that as well, you have to realise that even if you get more money, you need greater resource in terms of workforce. Uh, the changes that Brexit brought in will have an impact on that. So I think there are, there are several different pressure points which you can see starting to come together as we move forward. Some of them can be addressed by the government, perhaps looking at the legislation and how you can increase the workforce and make it easier for people to come in. But equally, some of it will take time in terms of relationship development and cultural change. You've touched on the pandemic and obviously um, speak for all of us when you point out the challenges the NHS uh, is now facing as a result of that. Uh, I just wondered whether the ways in which the NHS had to adapt um, to working during the pandemic, you think there's anything there which might um, have helped with sort of cultural change you've been talking about? So I think the, the work which providers did together will undoubtedly benefit because it developed and strengthened already existing relationships as we go forward. Um, I think also it made very clear, not just to the government, but to the nation generally, the benefit of digital technology, um, the ability to have consultations over the internet without people having to go into their GP surgery or even go into hospital. Um, the the benefit of actually starting to move towards a proper um patient record system that's electronic and making sure that is there. The benefit of having systems which enable people to make contact with the the right part of the NHS that it, that they need to contact, be that A&E or whether it's a pharmacy or whether it's a physiotherapy without having to spend a long time on the phone going through the, the digital platforms that are put in place. So I think those are certainly beneficial lessons we've learned, things that it will take time, although we have seen that uh, recently the department issued uh, a new plan for digital and how they expect the NHS to, to work through that and what they expect them to focus on, um, with the focus again being on the need for every uh, trust to make sure their electronic patient record is in place as soon as possible. Because from that, the benefit is that when somebody goes into A&E, then you would want that doctor to know what are the issues with this particular patient. And if they have the ability to look electronically, then that makes it much easier for them. So I think the cultural change has been, has benefited from the pandemic, as odd a statement as that may sound, because it caused people to work together. And I think we've also started to understand the real benefit of digital technology in terms of providing healthcare services. You set out very clearly for us, Gerard, the aims of this um, new structure. So in particular, this desire to create more joined up, integrated um, working within the NHS. Um, that in turn supposed to reduce health inequalities. And I suppose really what I'm wondering is how far you think the new structure goes to actually achieving that objective um, and in particular, is it as simple as just some restructuring through legislation or actually is this something that needs um, a significant cash injection? So all the legislation can really do is set the framework for how decisions are made and how the, the system operates um, 
in terms of putting in place the arrangements for the provision of healthcare across uh, England. I think we will see more guidance come out um, to try and support the objectives that have been put in place. That will look at both how the mandate objectives are met, how the um, intention to reduce inequalities of outcomes and access um, is met. And equally, I think we have to expect that there will be greater guidance over improving the delivery of services through digital technology. In fact, I think, as I mentioned, there's already been a new plan coming out from the um, from the department. They will also need to look at how workforce is dealt with. So there has to be a workforce plan now issued by the Secretary of State that has to be reviewed every five years um, with an annual update to it. I think it'll be quite interesting to see how that is taken forward because we know workforce is a problem um, in terms of making sure there are sufficient people working in the NHS to deliver all of the services. Um, but I think that those parts are all about creating the framework. In between that, it is about relationships, which I think were developed and improved um, during the pandemic, which can only be a good thing. It's about continuing with those relationships um, some of that will involve, you know, improving the relationship between the LHS and the local authorities and getting local government and NHS to work more together, especially over public health issues as we go forward, but also looking at out-of-hospital care and how they actually integrate in order to improve the services and the well-being overall of the population. Now, none of those things can be done through legislation. A lot of those things are, and they can't even be done through guidance, to be perfectly honest. They're about relationships. They're about giving people the time to work out what works best for them. And I think some of that has to involve, um, you know, greater money being given to, to both the NHS and to local government. So I don't think it's an either or. I think it's both of them need to get greater money because we know that the backlog isn't just going to disappear. It's going to take time to get through that. Um, we know that there are going to be greater um, priorities put on the need to deal with the, the overall cost of living. And we know that will have an impact on the issues which social care will have to look at. So that will undoubtedly require uh, greater investment so that they can address those. And with that, and the greater working together and collaboration across public authorities as a whole, then you should start to see the benefits. But that is going to take time. It's certainly not, we're not going to see it in nine months. We'll start to see where there may be some issues that could be ironed out in nine months. But you're talking about a long-term plan um, that is going to take a number of years to actually really come to fruition. And so some of it, again, will be about stability. Um, the NHS um, is not unaccustomed to change on a fairly regular basis. If you really want to see the benefits of taking this through, then the NHS and local government are going to have to be given the opportunity to actually take it all the way through to see their plans to come to fruition and to make sure that the integration created through the um, Health and Care Act and through any other new pieces of legislation, um, such as that proposed under the integration white paper, actually come to fruition. So is it fair to say then, Gerard, that you are cautiously optimistic? I think there are a lot of good people in the NHS. I think there are a lot of good people in local government. I think they all would like to see the benefits of the system that's being put in place. Um, 
But you can never tell when you're starting out on a journey exactly where it's going to end up and what the benefits overall are going to be. Um, I think in a slightly bizarre way, the pandemic helped because it helped the relationship side of it, which I think is crucial to what's being done. Um, But I think, you know, that's really a question which we'll be answering in two, three, four years. And I'm sure people like the King's Fund and Nuffield will do um, various articles on whether or not these changes have worked. Okay, well, we can invite you back in two or three three years' time to do part two to this podcast. I look forward to it. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com.